Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Reframers. I am one of your hosts, Zach. And I'm your other host, Erin. And our third host is... Hey, everybody. It's Cassie. Thanks for joining. This week, we are talking about the Russia-Ukraine war, basically. Wow. Yeah, pretty tough topic to jump back into after, you know, kind of being off for a few weeks. It's a really heavy subject. You know, what's going on in Ukraine is truly terrible. Um, We also just felt, though, that it's something that we need to talk about, and it's what's happening in the world right now. So we wanted to address it. And I'll be asking a couple of questions as we go through. We're talking about this as we record end of March. So this has been going on for several months at this point. We were debating and tossing it around. Should we talk about this? What's going to happen? And now we're here. So I'm going to ask everybody some questions about how we got to this point. What should the United States' role be in this situation? And are we talking about an impending World War III? Yeah, yeah, pretty much just a a light a light couple questions to get us started back up, but I'm interested to see because, you know, it, it's, it's obviously the biggest crisis that I think the world has faced since world war II, in my opinion, on a, on a global scale. So just with modern technology and modern weaponry and all of the different alliances that are formed now, it's, it's a very convoluted issue. So We'll dive into it. We'll do our best. None of us are foreign policy experts, um, as we like to say, usually at the end of the episodes, we're not experts, but this time we'll actually say that up front. But we're going to do our best to try to like give our give our opinions and, and provide hopefully some in- interesting points for people to consider. Yeah, I have been seeing <laughs> memes of people being like, oh, yes, everyone is now a geopolitical expert and everyone is now an expert on no fly zones. That's kind of where we're at right now. So we're going to go through a few of those just based on, you know, our research and what we've been seeing. This is something that I, I mean, everyone I, I feel like is at least aware of what's going on, even if not the minutia of it. So yeah. definitely one where we'd appreciate your opinions because we're all living through this right now. Definitely. So if you have a thought, you know, or an opinion, or you think one of us is like super wrong and missing something or downplaying something or whatever, send us a comment, send us an email, and we'll make sure to address that in the next episode. So we would love your feedback for sure. So do we want to start with sort of the background, the history of how we got here? Yeah, I think that's our first main topic today is, is how did all of this most recent conflict get started and and what led us to this point. Yeah, let's let's dive into it. So how far back do we want to go? I guess is my question. Well, first when God created the universe, there was nothing. <laughs> and then no, no, no. I think I don't know. I think we have to at least talk about NATO. NATO plays yep. a role in this. We have to at least talk about NATO. We can go back further if we want, you know, to the end of World War II. Well NATO but, came but, out of the end of World War II. So I think that is a good place to start. Yeah. Okay, let's start there then. So World War II ended, the Allies won the war, meaning the powers of the United States, Great Britain, and Russia, primarily France included, um, of course, but they defeated the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan, and emerged victorious. The interesting thing that came out of the war, though, was that at the time, the United States and Russia were kind of the big one-two powers and were allies. You know, we were both kind of, Russia was invading Germany from the east, the United States, uh, you know, and and the British forces were invading from the west. And it was this kind of big moment of who's going to get there first. So even in the, the, you know, tying the bow on World War II, there was already the seeds of this tension that would become the Cold War at uh, present at play in the victory of, of World War II. So mere moments after the war ended, now you suddenly have Russia and the United States as these uh, adversaries. And that tension really hasn't gone away. Yeah, they were competing world powers basically at the end of the war, you know, in part because there was some, some amount of less damage, particularly to the United States, um, than to other powers in Europe. 
And so the US and the Soviet Union kind of rose up as these world powers post-World War II. So that's where we kind of got into, or that is where we got into, you know, the fight over Germany and having a East Germany and a West Germany, one controlled by the United States and one controlled by Russia. And this goes into kind of the Cold War era where the USSR, which was Russia at the time, was expanding basically their vision of government, which is communism in various countries. And the United States was trying to fight against that with democracy in various countries. And so we sort of had these standoffs. And this is getting into some detail, but I actually think that's important for what the implications of the current conflict could be. But that's where we were post-Cold or post-World War II and then going kind of into the Cold War. But going back to kind of right at the end of World War II, there were uh, powers, allied powers that created this defense organization, basically. It's an intergovernmental military alliance. This is what NATO is. NATO stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it's an alliance among 28 European countries and two North American countries, that's the United States and Canada. It was established after World War II, and it implements the North Atlantic Treaty. That's where the name comes from. So all of these countries signed on to this treaty, and the treaty has various provisions. And as the name suggests, it's a defense treaty. And so part of the treaty is if one of these nations is attacked, the other nations are going to be allies of that nation. And that's important when you're talking about which countries are actually involved in NATO and who gets to join. Yeah, and the objective is to counter the power that the you know USSR was amassing, because there was this you know the this huge struggle of the Cold War was which ideology is going to win, and you had the domino theory in the United States where if one country falls to communism, then all the countries around it will fall, and it will be this you know domino type effect, and so you had this situation where you have really the the Western countries, you know, joining, you know, the NATO members in a direct opposition to the uh, USSR's goals. So just in the act of forming NATO, you pit all of the, the member nations against Russia, uh, basically. So, and, and I know it's Russia, you know, at the time it was the USSR, but we're just going to probably say Russia a lot because it's easier and we weren't born in the eighties. Um, so it's like easier for us just to say Russia. So it's, it's a threat. NATO's existence is a threat to Russia and its foreign policy interests, flat out, yeah. especially, in a, especially in a nuclear world, right? Because Great Britain has nukes, France has nukes, like many members of NATO have nuclear weapons. And I would say less, uh, especially just because Russia is now just this nation state of Russia has nuclear weapons. So it's, it's this imbalance of power from the Russian standpoint. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's not, I do want to note that NATO is not just a quote threat to Russia. I think that China also sees NATO as a little bit of a threat because it's sort of these authoritarian countries of say China and Russia who have a view of what kind of government is best basically against the Western countries, which is Europe and the United States who view democracy as the best country. So there's all, there's been this tension since World War II, you know, for a long time, but we're seeing those tensions rise into, you know, a war in Ukraine. And there's more complicated factors in Ukraine than just NATO, but it is a part of it. And I think that it informs how the United States specifically is thinking about this. Yeah. And so to, to bring us up to more recent times, you know, this is the, this, Involvement with Russia invading Ukraine is not the first thing that we've seen. This is not the first action we've seen from Russia that has been like this. In 2008, Putin's Russia invaded Georgia, which is another neighboring country to the west of Russia. He also invaded Crimea, Ludansk, and Don, Don, Donetsk in 2014. So just you know, within I, I remember these things being news events uh, when I was younger, and so. There's been a couple times now that Russia has been aggressive towards neighboring states because Putin, I think in particular, um, from what we know of the situation, feels like it's his you know, mandate or whatever to rebuild this Russian empire. And 
I think he feels like these areas or these nations that he's invading are Russian territories. Yeah. And at least with respect to Ukraine, he very much sees that as Russian land that it has a country on it, basically. And so in his view and, you know, some other people in Russia, it's hard to tell who thinks what in Russia beyond Putin. They view it as just retaking back, you know, something that belongs to them and is also a threat to them because of the backing of the West. So when you mentioned these other instances of Russia invading other neighboring countries, I guess those were all part of the USSR. Is that right? Did all those occasions have the same ultimate effect? Like, did they get sucked back into being a part of Russia? Is that what the intent is now with Ukraine? Um, yeah, so I believe that that when the situations before in 2008, 2014 were not met with the same level of pushback by the international community. So what I think happened is Putin invaded and basically installed kind of like a, it's called like a puppet regime or something where, you know, it's the the country still exists on the map, but effectively it's controlled by, by Russia, right? They just, you know, Putin will install somebody who is basically a puppet and does whatever he wants to do. And so while the nation still exists, it effectively is an agent or an actor that will work as Russia wants it to work. So this this Ukrainian situation is different. The objective is the same, right? The objective from Putin is retake Russia, you know, knock off the, the existing legitimate government that's there, install somebody who is, you know, I'm the new president, but the new president is basically just some lackey for, for what Putin wants. And then the conflict will be over. We'll settle a, you know, sign an air quotes peace deal. But now Ukraine is effectively part of, of Russia again. Yeah. And so what's happening in Russia specifically and what happened with these prior conflicts was or the result of the prior conflicts is Crimea, which is a large portion of southern Ukraine, is fully controlled by Russia and has been since 2014. So it's not its own country, but it's effectively operating as part of Russia because of the occupation of Russia there. And then for Donsk and Luhansk. I we we got to figure out how to pronounce these names. Uh, um, the yeah, the L one is um, yeah, Luhansk. I would guess Luhansk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, there, so there's been war in those two areas. They're on the eastern part of Russia. Um, there's been war there since 2014, basically eight years. Various conflict there, and they're self declared independent republics. They're not recognized by anyone yet as being an independent republic, but basically they're saying we should be our own countries, but they would be controlled by Russia in those sort of puppet type governments. And so Ukraine has basically been suffering attacks from Russia, trying to carve off pieces of the country for the last almost decade. So what happened in the last what, four months, basically, is in October of 2021, there started to be reports from Ukraine of and satellite imaging of Russia moving troops into position along the Ukrainian border. And that continued for three months, basically. And then in February, the United States was, was using their intelligence and saying, from what we're seeing, Russia's going to invade Ukraine. And that at the time was even controversial of if the United States should be saying that or not, if it was um, provoking Putin. But it eventually, I mean, pretty soon after the United States made those statements, it was within a couple of weeks, Russia did in fact invade Ukraine. So that happened at the end of February. And where we're at right now is that Russia has been attacking Ukraine for the past three weeks, almost four weeks, has taken various cities, but been held off in various places as well. I mean, yeah, effectively, it's, it's a war. It's it's not, you know, in, in the beginning stages, people were saying, oh, it's a conflict, it's a military action. But effectively right now, you know, Russia is at war with Ukraine and Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So I think that this whole thing would have been, would not be so convoluted if Ukraine was a member of NATO, but they're not. They have been granted like a fast track um, path to joining. But if Ukraine was a member of NATO, then you have basically, you know, all the, the member nations aligned against it. But we're trying to not, I think the international community, not we, I'm not doing anything, but the international community is trying to avoid a situation where the tensions are escalated to a point where we end up in a World War III type scenario or nuclear weapons are deployed or anything like that. So, 
yeah, it's been about a month, uh, right after the, actually the Olympics were, uh, concluded in China, Russia went ahead and, and invaded Ukraine. So, um, those two nations, as Aaron alluded to earlier, being kind of similarly aligned, um, I think there was some coordination there where China probably knew and said, just don't invade until after the Olympics are done and then you can do whatever you want. And that's exactly what happened. Well, and also their athletes probably would have been pulled or punished at least, right? Because we're seeing so much of that happening in different sports all over the world. Probably so. I mean, I think just from a, like a PR perspective, which is a kind of weird thing to think about, but in, in terms of, or it's probably just propaganda, but from a propaganda standpoint, it probably wouldn't look good if you have, you know, Russia and China who are closer aligned than we are to either of them. Uh, you know, China's hosting Olympics and suddenly Russia goes ahead and, and invades, invades Ukraine. Probably wouldn't look very good. But yeah, I mean, definitely we've seen a lot of anti-Russian actions, uh, both of like organizations and people since all this started. Yeah, uh, Cassie, you're mentioning different sports organizations and and relation to Russia right now. Um, my family's really into Premier League soccer. And so a big topic has been Chelsea, which is one of the really big Premier League teams, and it's owned by a Russian oligarch. And so there's been huge just outcry against the team, basically, or against the club because of this ownership. And I think they closed the stadium at one point. They stopped merchandising sales. And now the oligarch, his name is Roman Abramovich. Um, He's been ordered to sell Chelsea's soccer league. He's the owner of it because uh, because he is a Russian businessman, like in line with Putin. Mm hmm. Yeah, I remember when when all of this first kicked off, the the action was actually pretty swift from the private sector, right? You saw a lot of private groups, you know, meaning not not government groups, but you saw a lot of private organizations saying, you know, we're not going to allow the Russian team to play, or we're not going to sell our products in Russia. Like AMD and Intel said, we're not going to sell to Russia anymore. And uh, I mean, I, I can't even think of all the examples, but there was just tons of them. And, and I thought, well, this was actually really nice to see from the international community because it actually is government sanctions are one thing, which I think are one lever, but the fact that the private sector kind of unanimously recognized this as being something that is bad was a positive, but I did see it bleed into actually like kind of discrimination against individuals, you know, of Russian ancestry or, or heritage, in which case it's like, uh, that I don't think is so good. But like, I like where your guys' heads are at. It's just, you know, you can't discriminate like on the individual level. But it's it's been interesting to see the response for sure. Yeah, I do think that gets a little complicated, but it was yeah. it was definitely a lot happening all at once, which was it was nice to see that people weren't doing nothing. But I'm gonna segue us from this to our next question, which is what do you each think should be the United States' role in the conflict? And then as a sort of section B of that question, what previous actions has the United States taken in these similar instances in the past decade or so that we've talked about that maybe influence your opinion on what we should be doing or not doing? My general opinion is the United States should be doing what it's currently doing. And so maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about what the United States is currently doing. So first of all, we and Europe have instituted very aggressive sanctions against Russia to the point where it's dropped the ruble, which is the currency of Russia, down by like 40%, maybe even more at this point. Um, It's very destructive to their economy. And this is, it's a tough one because it does hurt the people of Russia, but it also um, is intended to put pressure on the government and pressure on the people to protest this war. and to, to tell their government it's not okay, but then also specifically, and many of the sanctions were designed to do this, to punish the government officials and the oligarchs who are in like the top control basically of the country and who greatly benefit from the economics in the country. So I think that those sanctions are something that people I think didn't expect them to be as effective as they had, have been so far. And it's partly because Putin, at least, and maybe the rest of the world, didn't expect them to be as aggressive as they were either. But Putin certainly was very surprised by how aggressive the sanctions were, because they really have been 
have had a, a big effect on the Russian economy. And he's characterized it as economic warfare, I think. I just had a quick question. How do we measure how successful something like this is? Is there like a number or this no. many people are hurting? Like, how do you measure if it's more or less effective than you're expecting? I would say the the measurement maybe like the if they were really successful, it would change what Putin is doing, right? Like that's the intent is that we're saying we disagree. And if we punish you enough economically, you're going to turn around and get out of Ukraine. Like that would be what a really successful sanction would do, right? Sanctions in history have not accomplished that kind of goal. They And, and everyone kind of knows that they're, they're intended as like mark against the country, they can injure the country, but they don't usually actually change the direction of a war or a conflict situation. But you can look at some of the effects of them, like how they're impacting the economy, how they're impacting people on top. And I think that's a measure of at least what they're doing in the country. I think the tertiary benefits, because yeah, sanctions have never dissuaded a war or reversed a war, right? But they can have impacts. And I think some of the tertiary impacts of the sanctions are things like if you freeze the oligarchs' money in Russia, you know, and and you they can't access their bank accounts, which are, you know, some, you know, tied up in the United States and some are tied up in other, you know, NATO countries or whatnot. Suddenly those people who were billionaires or something now have millions or billions of their dollars locked up and are not able to use those. They're going to be kind of pissed at Putin being like, hey, your little war in Ukraine is now affecting me and like my lifestyle. And by crashing or tanking the Russian economy in the way, obviously, it does hurt the citizens of Russia who are probably by and large innocent in all of this. But it also starts having them put pressure from the bottom up against the government as well. And we've seen, I mean, people have seen all and probably tanks, good news and whatnot, the like Russia protests against the war. Russian soldiers coming out and saying, you know, we were lied to and you can't have the information locked down like you did in the Cold War era where the KGB just comes and like takes you away in the night. It's there's too much technology to have that situation play out. So the sanctions, I think, are uh, it's just a way to add more pressure. And the fact, I think, too, that we didn't do anything, not we, the United States, but just we as the international community didn't do anything in 2008 and 2014. So I think Putin probably reasonably felt like yeah, I can invade this little eastern part of the Ukraine and nothing's going to happen to me. But, you know, in this case, that wasn't true. And and obviously now there's been, I mean, they've kicked out a SWIFT, which SWIFT was like the international like money changing thing. So you can't even really process payments in and out of Russia anymore if you're not from Russia. So it's, it's a huge, it's a huge um, impact for sure. Yeah. And, you know, you're mentioning these prior conflicts. And I know that's sort of part B of the question, but We've instituted sanctions in various situations like this before, including during Russia's actions in 2008 and 2014, but they were far more minor. They were not these kinds of sanctions. There's never been sanctions like this before. And I do think that potentially there's going to be greater effect because there's never been sanctions that have been this aggressive. And so we'll see, you know, it, it certainly is hurting Russia right now. So that's one of the things that we're doing right now. The Secretary of State of the United States has said that in order for us to lift the sanctions, what would need to happen is Russia leaves Ukraine, but doesn't just leave, that there's a guarantee that they're not going to come back, basically. So you'd have to have some some sort of mechanism. I don't know exactly what that would look like. Of like guarantee some kind of that treaty Russia's almost. Not gonna try, yeah, treaty something that they're not yeah. going to come back in like five years and try this again. So that's the statement, at least right now, of what would cause our sanctions from the United States to actually be lifted. So that's one of the things that we're doing that, you know, I totally agree with. And I think we should continue that. Another thing that we've been doing as the United States is providing weapons and intelligence to Ukraine, lots of military weapons, um, which were bringing in through neighboring countries like Poland. And then so that we don't actually have, I, I don't think this is exactly the reason, but we, we don't have troops in Ukraine right now. And the all of the rhetoric from the White House, as well as the American population, our, our opinion, if you look at opinion polls, is that people don't want United States soldiers in Ukraine. Like Almost no one wants that. And so we're looking kind of for these other ways of how to support Ukraine. 
And I think doing uh, providing the military weapons and providing particularly the security intelligence, I think has been really helpful for Ukraine in fighting the war on these various fronts. Another thing that I think we are doing and should continue to do maybe even more aggressively is fight against the misinformation coming, not even misinformation, sorry, the propaganda coming from Russia that goes to its citizens, but also to places in Europe and even wider. I mean, it's like kind of a joke, like Reddit or something of like Russian trolls on the internet, but that's actually a real thing. And so fighting against those messages, I think is a really important thing. And I'm happy to see, I think that's been a priority of the White House. And so it's good to see that. And then finally, I think humanitarian aid, which this was part of the funding that the United States passed maybe two weeks ago. It was a huge bill. It was- um, It was just last week, yeah. Was was it last week? Yeah. Yeah. More than a billion total has been approved for US assistance to Ukraine. A large portion of that is for humanitarian aid. And so I absolutely think that's something we should be doing as well. So that's kind of my thoughts on where we're at. For where we are right now, I think the United States is doing what they should be doing. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, um, I think that that's mostly good. Um, I, I've seen some statements from some senators saying that the sanctions are, while they have the strongest that we've ever done, have some carve-outs for military and energy sectors that are still allowing you know Russia to, to do that. And so I think that if we were you know really gung-ho Russia's backbone of their economy is, I think, built around energy. Like that's that's their their biggest thing that they provide. Western Europe gets two thirds of their energy consumption from from Russian oil. So, and in the United States, I think buys something like eight hundred thousand barrels a day, if I have that stat correct, from Russia. And as far as I know, we're still doing that. I would stop those as well. And I think that we, in the short term, I know that the the Biden White House is very adamant on its green agenda and getting away from fossil fuels. I totally understand that. But I think if we were really going to try to stop this this Russia thing from going farther, we would temporarily allow for for oil drilling in the United States, sanction Russian oil, military, you know, weapons and things like that because that spending is still I think happening. And for the short term allow us to produce oil and sell it to Western Europe, sell it to ours, you know, not sell it to ourselves, but allow us to use it. And then I think that would really put the pressure on Russia a lot more. Once that's done, we can, you know, the conflict is, you know, mediated or resolved or whatever, we can talk about it. But as a short-term stopgap, I would love to see that happening. Mm, That's interesting. I do want to mention one thing about the energy, because I think that's very true. This is, I mean, that's the, that's Russia's major export. That's one of the, I mean, probably the main reason they're a world power and also their size. I think it's complicated because Western Europe is so dependent on Russia's oil. So, you know, we can, as the United States, maybe make more aggressive moves on that front. It's really tricky with Europe, though, and what they're going to do because they're so reliant. And I do think it's it's tough because we want a immediate solution, but it's actually like a longer term problem for Western Europe specifically. And I, I do think there is more conversation now in Europe on what do we do about our energy because we mm-hmm. can't be reliant on Russia like this, especially if they're going to be this kind of bad actor on yeah. the world stage. Yeah. And maybe, you know, maybe, you know, drilling or something isn't fast enough solution. So maybe we sell some of our reserves or something like that. You know, I, I don't know, but I think if I think that there are probably ways for people that know a lot more than I do for us to provide some relief to Europe and still put the pressure on Russia in the energy department, you know, in, in a like immediate sense. So that's one thing I think that we could do more of that still is, you know, not anything different in terms of action, just it's uh, more evenly applied. The misinformation or the propaganda, I totally agree. Um, I just, I think that in general, I think that maybe this could be a good moment for us to like start a conversation for bots. Like maybe we don't allow bots, you know, or AI on social media platforms. Like why is that, are you just inflating your numbers because you're allowing bots? Like, especially if the bots are Russian disinformation or any disinformation, then like that should be out. I also, I think in, in agreement about like no troops on the ground, people are probably going to ask us about the no fly zone. To me, that seems like a direct escalation. So I I don't think that we should be involved in instituting a no fly zone because then it, you're having us. We should explain uh, what that is. Yeah. So it's your opinion about it. Yeah. 
it's basically saying we're not going to allow any Russian airplanes over Ukrainian airspace, basically. And so this if you, is, yeah, yeah, and this is a big deal because President Zelensky of Ukraine has asked Congress directly to institute yeah. a no-fly zone. And but the the problem is is okay, fine, but Ukraine can't enforce that. Like the Ukrainian military and air force is not big enough or capable enough to do that themselves. So they would need help from someone. Who are they going to do it? You know, who's going to do that? Is it going to be Germany? So now you have German pilots and German air force fighting Russians. Yeah, uh, you let know, me it's, just, it, I, it, I didn't it's very know, messy. Yeah, I didn't know a ton about this. So I just want to explain it a little bit more. So as far as like what a no fly zone, how that works is like downtown DC is a no fly zone. It means that there's no commercial aircraft or private aircraft allowed in that area of DC. There's government planes, like Air Force One can go there, but it's very, very limited. So for Ukraine, what they're asking for is that if you're going to enforce a no-fly zone in Ukraine, you have to patrol the perimeter of the country and be willing to shoot down any planes that are violating that no-fly zone. But in order to do that, that means you have to take out aircraft batteries that might be on the ground, that might be defending those planes that are in the no-fly zone those aircraft batteries on the ground are in Russia. So basically doing a no-fly zone and actually enforcing it means that you'd be attacking air batteries and, and sites Defenses, in Russia. Yeah. So that's basically like why everyone is saying like we can't do this because it would mean attacking Russian soil. Which is an escalation, right? Because at this point, we're, we, meaning the Western forces, NATO and, and Ukraine, are fighting a defensive war. It's not, it's, it's a non-aggressive war, right? We're killing Russian soldiers, again, not the United States, but the, the good guys here are killing Russian soldiers, but it's in a defensive capacity, not in an offensive capacity. And to do a fly zone or no fly zone would be a counterpunch, an offensive action against Russia, which obviously is, is escalating. As a preview, later we're going to be talking about what has to happen for this all to become a World War III situation. And I think talking about the no-fly zone will definitely come up in that section. Yeah. I mean, that that could be that could be a step. If suddenly we're taking out air defenses in, in Russia, then Russia says, you know, Russia's their their biggest thing is is they've been good at this forever since, you know, at least a hundred years since we've kind of had a more international communities. They're great at that spycraft stuff. They're great at propaganda and the messaging, and they will take any instance and they will spin it and blow it up into, it was an attack on Moscow itself. And look, Russia is great at staging false flag operations. Like that's some of the danger in dealing with them is that they are conniving and tricky. And again, I'm not talking about Russian people, like, but as, as a government and as a KGB and all this stuff, like they're just, they're tricky. They're. I think I saw something in the beginning of this conflict that they had filmed, like they had produced a video that was showing Russian soldiers dressed in Ukrainian military garb attacking like a Russian convoy or something. And we're claiming, look, no, the Ukrainians attacked us. Like they're great at that kind of stuff. So that's obviously something that I think everybody probably is very cautious of. Yeah, maybe we should have mentioned this at the beginning, but the reasoning that Putin gave, at least to his people, of why they were invading Ukraine was to fight Nazism that was happening in the country and genocide. And the propaganda that has been in Russia and, you know, Belarus also, and then parts of Ukraine that are Russian occupied has been very effective. There are many people in those areas who believe yeah. that Russia is going in to liberate Ukraine, right? So this is just another example of how Russia is controlling and manipulating information, telling outright lies. I mean, none of this is yeah. true, but then using that to influence how their people think. And I actually also think to influence how other people in the world are thinking. I did find something since we're talking about propaganda that I wanted to mention. Russia has claimed in the past that the US funded biological weapons labs in Ukraine and that that's another one of the reasons that they might be threatened by Ukraine. This has been unfounded and the US has funded bio labs in Ukraine since 2005 with actually the specific purpose of preventing them from producing bioweapons. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually like the exact opposite, but it's interesting the. And this is really unfortunate that we're part of this, but InfoWars 
basically brought up this story saying, well, you know, we've antagonized Russia because the U.S. has been like helping develop bioweapons in Ukraine, which we haven't been doing. But then the Kremlin, after InfoWars ran that, seized on it. And mentions of bioweapons in Ukraine have increased. They've more than doubled since early March on Russian and English social media, on cable TV, in print, online outlets. And so there's also a circular information issue Mm. here. It doesn't just affect Russia. This bleeds into how our news and our, you know, more fringe groups interpret these things. And there has been you know, more pro-Russia leaning sentiment in uh, even our very recent past in the United States. And I think that muddies this a little bit as well. And we just have to be careful of that as the United States, because how we think about this, how we talk about it, Russia can use that, Putin can use that, right? And, And twist it in a way like you're talking about, Zach, that can make, that can just manipulate the information. Yeah. It's it's all it's all super messy and and they're just they're masters at that so it it's really something we need to be careful on. But I just wanted to to say something else about the providing weapons and things like that because you know we we've been in this situation with Russia, although it hasn't been this tense and or this direct before, right? With fighting wars in Afghanistan or fighting wars in Vietnam or Korea, right? Where you pretty much have the United States fighting Russia, except it's just done through these other nations. Where um, you know we're providing weapons to groups, and then they go and fight, or we're providing, you know, and I'm sure intelligence, right? So it's interesting that we're seeing this play out again in such a new, right? It's 2022, like this is a huge conflict taking place in a very industrialized kind of nation. Afghanistan is not the Ukraine, so the conflicts look very different in impact there because you actually have, you know, huge, ginormous buildings being destroyed. And it's just, it's a, the nature of the conflict is different, but it still effectively is, you know, as we are providing financial assistance and military assistance and intelligence, it does put us in, I think, to gently a little bit of a path of Russia saying, well, you're effectively at war with us already. It's maybe not your soldiers, but it's your guns, it's your info. So I just think we need to be careful about that approach because, you know, obviously, if Russia got the idea that I think they would lose that fight, by the way, obviously, but that is something that does lead to the opening the door to potentially nuclear conflict. So us providing, you know, those things, I think is good, because obviously, we don't want the sovereign nation of Ukraine to fall to, you know, Russian influence, but just something to be cautious of how much we're providing and in what way. And I, I saw maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, I think it was Lindsey Graham saying something on TV about how somebody you know, some patriot can go ahead and take out Putin or something and be great. Like, that's something that we should not be saying, especially on international news, because if something then did happen to Putin, by you saying that you're opening the door to, well, did the United States have any involvement in taking out a head of state? So in sense of what things should we or shouldn't we not be doing, that's something we should not be doing. We should not be talking about publicly assassinating the president of, of Russia. I think that would be bad. Bad PR. Uh, just yeah, that's like dumb, just I, dumb. I, it's it, that's <laughs> yeah. so dumb. I'm honestly though, he says so many dumb things. Like, <laughs> but you're right. It's just that's that's he shouldn't be saying that. So like a really, we're talking about like how words matter and how we talk about this matters. You know, yeah. we, it's it is a delicate situation. So that's an interesting take. I I hear your caution on yeah. that kind of support. I think that I disagree with it. You know, I, I do think we should be doing everything we can possibly do other mm-hmm. than like boots on the ground to be supporting Ukraine right now. But I, I take your point. I understand the risk. Yeah. What makes you feel like we should do more? Why are we talking about this and getting so involved with this specific instance? Like, don't countries fight and get mad at each other all the time? Like, why are we so involved with Russia and the Ukraine specifically? The characterization is not, it's kind of different because it's not just like one country getting mad at another country or like people groups within countries fighting each other, which has been a lot of conflict in recent years. This is an authoritarian country invading a democratic country to take it over and institute their own government there. Like something like that really hasn't happened. In we don't see a lot years. of invasions. Like this is a full on no. invasion of a sovereign nation. Like mm-hmm. this, this is not, this is a very different kind of conflict than what we were fighting in Afghanistan. 
right? We were fighting a specific group of people. We weren't fighting the Afghanistan government when we were there. We were fighting a specific group of people that had bad intentions that we were able to somewhat define and go after. But this is literally the head of the head of the Russian power structure trying to assassinate another head of state and take over that nation. That that does not happen as much, you know, even really since World War II. I mean, even Korea and Vietnam were officially on paper, you know, they were kind of inter interstate conflicts that we were backing one group and Russia was backing another group. This is a full on like a state against the state type of conflict. Okay, the next question I have for you is what has to happen for this to become a World War Three situation? Do you think we're on that track? What big or small things would have to happen for us to be in that place? Can it happen overnight? Would it take years? What are your thoughts? I think something to keep in mind, and this has really been in the background of all of this, this whole conflict, is the availability of nuclear weapons is different today than it was during World War II. And that has colored, I I really think it's colored how the West has responded to this, how the United States has responded to this. Putin's indicated, not said outright, but indicated that he's prepared to use nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. if the U.S. gets involved, for instance, in a more uh, direct way. And it is interesting. I was reading an article the other day about Putin having this idea that for one, Russia is really threatened by the West. He feels very threatened by the West, has for a long time, but threatened to the point of afraid that the United States or other countries are actually going to invade Russia. And that's not something that is like on the US's radar or has been at least in the past. This is not something that's like ever been on the table. And the US has said again and again and again, like, we want a stable relationship with Russia. We want to be able to work with Russia. Like, this is not something that is in a reality, basically, as, you know, at least to this point. Yeah, it's not a potential, right? What In what scenario does the United States invade Russia? Russia. It yeah, just doesn't, exactly. it's not, it doesn't happen. And yeah. so, th- but there is a reaction. There's at least a thought Putin thinks that that is a real threat. And because of that, he's prepared to do things like maybe use nuclear weapons if he really thinks that that's going to happen. And so the threat of that is more real than it's been since World War II, since the last nuclear weapon was used. And so I think everyone is very concerned about that possibility. And I do think that there are scenarios, there are extreme scenarios, but there are scenarios where that potentially could happen in a more real way or a more, it's more of a threat now than I would say it's been in the last 50 years. Yeah, I think the first the first biggest threat to be a, a nuclear weapon scenario would be is Putin sane, right? Is is he actually somebody who and I don't mean like in the like casual way that we throw that around like oh you're crazy. No, like is he actually have a grasp on reality? Because him thinking he can go ahead and get away with this and thinking that the United States would you know, or Western nations would have a plan to invade Russia is not a very like you have to disregard so much geopolitical knowledge to to consider that a, a potential you know reality that I think it's you're not wrong to question his sanity. So number one, he's insane. And then he's like, you know what? This Ukrainian business is going real bad. I need to, you know, throw a Hail Mary. I'm gonna nuke London or something. I don't know. But like that's one scenario. I think another scenario would be, you know, some Russian allied nation decides that they want to get involved to ingratiate themselves to Russia, you know, say like Iran, Iran is looking to maybe up their status on the geopolitical spectrum. And so they decide that they're going to start some S someplace. And, and now you kind of have a multi-front issue where you have the defense of the Ukraine, but also Iran is going and I think Iran is a nuclear power now. So then you have to be really delicate with them obviously their proximity to China. So that's, I think, maybe another potential scenario. I think the third is if the West gets more directly involved and, and starts sending troops. That's, I think, how... I don't think that will happen. I think it, it would take something pretty drastic for that to be the case. But I think that that is the third maybe likely scenario of you have people in US flags on their uniforms or UK flags or whatever that are actually on the ground fighting. That could potentially escalate Again, because I think Russia just needs some excuse to say you're doing X, Y, or Z, and we're going to you know, escalate and escalate, and then 
then it's that's it so yeah you know Cass, you mentioned no fly zones and potentially the u.s or another western country being involved in like russian territory that's something that president biden has said specifically that would be a road to world war three so like that is a call out right there of something that would be a step in that direction whether it's nuclear or not that that is something that would like bring this conflict because this these are two really big world powers, the United States and Russia, right? And it influences all of these other countries. So we do have to be really careful about using troops on the ground. I do want to mention something, and it's tough because I this is such a terrible situation, and I really don't want it to escalate more. But in um, Maripol, I think, Russia took a bunch of people and bust them into Russia, people of Ukraine, and carry them across the border into Russia. We don't really know where, potentially Eastern Russia, potentially like Siberia. It's, this is a, that is really, really concerning. And to me, that gets us into like, are these people going to camps? You know, what is happening here? And one of the places that we, one of the reasons we actually got involved in World War II when we sat on the sidelines for a really long time is concentration camps. You know, and I don't, I don't know exactly what's happening with that. I don't want to be alarmist or anything, but that's one scenario I could see if we knew something like that was happening again in Russia, that might be a situation where we would feel like we needed to get more involved in a more direct way. Yeah. This is a good time to plug one of my favorite books is the Gulag Archipelago. Um, because literally, I mean, um, it's written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn and, um, it's a phenomenal work. It's a nonfiction book detailing the specific horrors of the the gulag system basically russia's version of concentration camps and in the recent days you know i think over the past week maybe nine days or so i've seen more and more that people are various people are coming out saying russia is engaging in war crimes and so that's obviously you know the last time we had i don't want to say last time but the most famous you know, instances of war crimes were those done, you know, with the Nazis and obviously um, Japan, that was a world war situation. So if that is true and you have Russia, which the Gulag Archipelago is, you know, something that existed from, I think, 1918 when the Russian revolution started up until the time of Stalin, like it wasn't just a world war II thing. Like it, it persisted well into the USSR where basically hundreds of millions of people, Russians owned citizens were carted off and just eliminated with without record or reason. So if if that is another situation, you know, that's that's potential to happen again, you know, Putin is a former KGB, I don't know if you can be former KGB, but he's a KGB trained, you know, kind of spy. It, it's Russia has a really strong history with, oh, you were fighting for the, the Soviets in World War II, and you engaged with the Germans, you know, meaning you fought against the Germans. The fact that you had contact with them is enough reason for us to thank you for your service. You're in a camp. Like Russia does not need any good reason to put people in a in a concentration camp. So I highly recommend people read that book. It's mm-hmm. not a pleasant read, but it's like honestly, I think it should be required reading. It's phenomenal. Yep. I actually still have Zach's copy. Need to return that. Um <laughs> so you know it's safe and sound. I just I just wanted to look up this story to make sure I got the facts of this right, because this is a really serious thing to be talking about. Um, and I want to make sure that we have all the information correct. And what it is, is over the past week, there's been several thousand Maripol residents who've been taken onto Russian territory from Russian troops. They illegally took them from where they were sheltering. The Russian troops illegally took these people from where they were sheltering. It's mostly women and children. And they were taken to camps where Russian forces checked their phones and documents, redirected some of them to remote cities in Russia. And then some of them, they don't, they're not sure what's happened to them. So that's the story right now. Maripol is one of the cities that has been in heavy fighting in recent days. Lots of the, just lots of the attacks have been happening around there. So that is the story that I'm referencing. Just want to make sure that's recorded. At best, it's leverage, right? So the Russians can say, I have hostages and I'll trade, you know, these guys for your guys, whatever. But I I don't, uh, it's bad situation either way. That's obviously a terrible situation because you're basically a prisoner of war. I just want to take a moment to mention that there are ways for us to help. And 
honestly, I know it's natural to feel like we're really, really far away from being able to help at all. But thankfully, there are organizations like UNICEF and International Rescue Committee, Doctors Without Borders, and many more. So we'll put a link in our stories so you can decide how you want to help in in any ways that you feel are best. Um, Just want to mention this because this is all really horrible and hard to talk about and so sad for the Ukrainians, but there are things we can do to help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I did. I, yeah, I had almost those exact same uh, resources to, to plug. I did want to mention some statistics of where we are in the current state of the war. Currently where we're at is this is um, March 23rd. It looks like there are about a little less than 2,500 civilian casualties in Ukraine since February 24th. 3.6 million people have fled Ukraine and are refugees um, largely in Europe. 10 million people have been displaced internally and about 1,300 Ukrainian soldiers have died so far. There are reports on Russian soldier deaths, and it's interesting because the data on them just ranges depending on where you get it. Russia is saying that Russian soldier deaths are at about 500. Ukraine says these deaths are about (laughs) 13,000, and the United States estimate is about more than 7,000 is where we're putting Russian deaths. Yeah, it's a huge, huge difference, and that is something to keep in mind, too, you know. Putin really thought he was going to roll over Ukraine. He really did. And that has not been the case at all. The Ukrainian people have showed just a astounding spirit and determination to fight for their country and just so much resilience. And it's been very inspiring. And I do want to call that out as well. It's definitely like spirit of 1776 kind of stuff. Like they're, I mean, they, they are people that are they're Ukrainians. Like they don't see themselves as, oh, we were Russians. Like they see themselves as Ukrainians and they're coming together and supporting, you know, their troops. And I super commend the Ukrainian government for some of its actions in terms of uh, teaching people how to fight, giving them weapons. And, you know, here's how to make a Molotov cocktail. Like you've seen civilian insurrectionists be effective against the Russian military, who also, by the way, is not performing what everybody thought it would. Um, They are facing logistical issues, supply chain issues. I think that their losses have been higher than what people were expecting. I don't think it's what the Ukrainians say, 13,000. I probably don't think it's that high. I think it's probably closer to the U.S. estimate, I would guess. Yeah, I I think that, you know. Which the U.S. says is they think is conservative, 7,000 being fairly conservative. Yeah, that that, I'm not getting any intel reports, but that feels about right to me, like Zelensky has an interest in making that number higher to show, look, we're doing a good job. Like we're taking out way more of them than they are of us. And, you know, your troops and your guns and your whatever are going to go to good use. But there is so they're a sovereign nation and they should they absolutely have the right to defend themselves, both as individuals and as a country. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't give enough props to the people and the soldiers that are that are defending the Ukraine. Yeah. And the Pentagon actually had a report today that said. of the Russian combat power that was pre-staged at Ukraine's borders has already entered Ukraine, 90%. So, I mean, that there's more Russian troops, but all the ones that they had lined up basically to go on, which is Mm -hmm. 150,000 troops have entered or have tried to enter Ukraine and just the Ukraine military and people have really resisted in a way that Putin wasn't expecting. And I think a lot of the world wasn't expecting um, to really have showed up to fight for their people in their country. Something that's interesting that I, I heard um, discussed is, I mean, in a, in a monopolistic or oligarchical system like Russia is, you know, dictatorial, there's plenty, plenty of opportunity for corruption. You know, I know that we like to bag on ourselves in the United States because we obviously are, have our own issues to deal with, but in a dictatorship situation like, like Russia has effectively, especially one that's so authoritarian, right? I think that the the opportunity for for corruption is just through the roof. So if you have some, you know, military commanders who are saying, here, my troop strength is X, Y, or Z, or we have this much fuel or whatever, like you want to present yourself in the best light possible, except when the rubber hits the road and your troop strength is actually, you know, 30% less than what you said it was. And, oh, we, we thought we had this much fuel, but I don't know, something happened. You know, I was taking some off the top for my good buddies, and we actually only have this much, then you end up with these situations where 
you look better on paper than you are. And I think that that probably is, is playing some role here because, um, you know, the Russian is, it's been, it's been something that's, uh, institutional in their system practically. Um, if you want a, a good movie on kind of a satire is watch the death of Stalin. It's a hilarious movie. I loved it. If, if you kind of like that kind of humor, but it just kind of highlights some of the absurdities of, of their system because power is so important there versus here it's, you know, laws and transparencies and the power of the office for them, it's the power of the person. And so I think that that is relevant to the situation at hand. Um, and finally, I just want to give just two resources of places where uh, there's been really good updates um, about the ongoing conflict. One is the BBC News. They have a really good war in Ukraine page that has um, consistent updates. One is the um, Global Conflict Tracker. They have, it's really great, actually. They have um, a summary of the conflict, alerts, and then links to various sources, including websites and uh, newspapers in Ukraine. Cool. Thanks, Aaron. Mm -hmm. I have another resource I'd like to share that I'm not sure I've shared yet, which is shocking because I think we all love her. My mom gets the credit for bringing her up to me. Her name is Sharon Says So on Instagram. Sharon has her own podcast as well. She's amazing. She calls herself America's government teacher, and she covers politics and history without the hate, which is kind of what we do. She's really, really funny, highly educated, and completely unbiased and fair. I really appreciate Sharon's daily Instagram stories to get caught up on what's going on in the world and what's going on in our country. She gives super good examples of media bias and misinformation too, um, which we talked about a little bit today. Um, so like an event will happen and she'll say, here's what happened, and then show 10 different headlines and examples of how different news outlets and media covered the same event. So I would just really encourage everyone to give her a follow. She's a super great reference and resource. And also she's really positive, which is helpful when you're downloading a lot of important information at once. And then I just want to read quickly something that Sharon wrote that I found valuable when we were first beginning to research for today's episode from Sharon. I know y'all look to me to give you facts without a lot of my opinion inserted into them, but there are lines I cannot cross and Putin is one of them. I'm not going to give you five reasons why Putin might be right to invade Ukraine. Some things are just wrong. Tyranny is one of them. Murder is one of them. Killing innocent civilians in an unprovoked war is one of them. So you'll get no pro-Putin sympathies here. It also bears repeating that a country's people are not the same as a country's leader. Don't assume all Russians approve of Putin, just like I am sure you wouldn't want people assuming all Americans like President X or Y President. Zelensky's commitment to his people is admirable. I can't think of another leader with more George Washington vibes than someone being willing to roll up his sleeves to preserve and protect freedom. He knows the chances he'll be killed are extremely high. He knows there is a price on his head, but he would rather go down fighting for freedom than stand by from relative safely while his country is seized. This is a watershed moment for democracy at large. This is history unfolding on Twitter in real time, complete with billionaires flexing their satellite muscle and hacker armories being recruited. And yet it's the ordinary people who are most affected and their faces we must keep seared in our memories. Freedom isn't always free, but it's always worth it. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, nothing I can add to that. That was great. Thanks for sharing that, Cass. We love you, Sharon. <laughs> As always, we're super grateful to each of you for joining us and listening and being involved in the hard conversations. I personally have not talked about Ukraine a lot because it mostly makes me sad and I've been getting most of my news from online good news sites, but it is important to learn and I feel like I learned a lot from each of you today. I really value both of you bringing your unique perspectives. You did a good job framing it from a few different sides. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Cass. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. No, I, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what's right. Time will tell. But it's everything's so complicated and multifactorial and multifactored. That's better. Faceted? Faceted. faceted yeah. sure we'll yeah that makes me sound better than i sounded but you know it's it's i think the 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 only thing i know for certain is u.s direct involvement would be bad at this stage that's the only thing i feel confident about 100 percent. i feel confident about that i also feel confident that u.s indirect involvement is crucial yeah i mean yeah i think so to what degree is is always where we differ <laughs> yep 
always. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Be sure to check out our uh, various resources, Instagram and whatnot. <laughs> yep. See ya. Please follow us, rate and review us five stars. We really appreciate it. And spread the word. We'd love to have more framers join us every week. So um, thank you so much for listening. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Reframers pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com.